Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Thank you guys once again for joining the 980s podcast hosted by yours truly, Kevin Thompson, founder and CEO of 90 Capital Group. Thank you guys for joining us. As I always say, subscribe to the channel. As I always say, go get my book, MLB to CSP, live on Apple Books. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about today's podcast, you can go to 9innings at 9icapgroup.com. Email us there. You can go to our website, www.9innings.com. Schedule a meeting if you have any questions, comments, or concerns. And of course, you can go to, to iTunes, listen to our podcast, Apple iTunes, and type in 9innings Capital Group there. Or if you, want, if you just want the, uh, the YouTube version, go to YouTube and listen to our podcast channel at 90scapitalgroup.com, 90scapitalgroup there. So please, please, we got all that out of the way. Today, we're talking to a gentleman, a gentleman that's a charter financial analyst, Michael Pichotti from Integrated Capital Management. He is a close, close friend of ours. He's one of our portfolio managers here as well. And we are gonna be talking about some core, th- core topics right now. One being that the Federal Reserve is tapering. What does that actually mean? We're going to talk about value versus growth. We're going to talk about a little bit about the markets today. So today, introducing our friend, Michael Pichotti. Michael, thank you for joining the 980s podcast today, man. I appreciate you giving us some time today. I love having these conversations, bringing on the professionals that are actually in those bunkers, right? That are that are battling these this volatility, that are battling all of this this different stuff that you're seeing every single day. Man, I appreciate you jumping on today. Glad to be here. So, Mr. Michael Pichotti, Charter Financial Analyst. Uh, uh, that's one of the hardest designations in the business, by the way. Hey, I tried it. I'm still stuck on level, well, actually, I think I'm past level one, I'm on level two now, I can't, I can't remember where I am, but I kind of had to take a detour to go get my, my, my CFP, because that, that CFA, man, I'm going to tell you right now, that's a, that's a totally different bear in this industry, but hey, that's why we have him on the call, because he's one of the smartest men we know, having his CFA, and he actually is the uh, head guy at Integrated Capital Management, so Mike, tell us a little bit about Integrated Capital Management. How long have you been, uh, how long have you actually been managing money? And tell us a little bit about the philosophy around integrated capital management and, and what you guys Sure, yeah. So, I mean, you know, geez, uh, I've been managing money a, a long, long time. So I entered the business back in, um, in 1996, but uh, integrated capital management as an organization uh, was founded as a uh, lift out of the investment department of one of the nation's largest mutual insurance companies. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, we've been doing, uh, this about, about 13 years now. We're in our 13th year of operation. Our history actually dates back probably 20 years prior to that, to, um, uh, one of the nation's largest plan sponsors. So, um, what, the second part of your question, what do we do from an investment philosophy perspective? We follow a, um, uh, a pretty traditional value focused approach to investing, uh, but we approach it, I guess I like to say, a little bit differently than most do. Mm-hmm. So first, um, we're referred to uh, as um, uh, top-down money managers, meaning we don't do our research at an individual company level, but rather on markets or asset classes as a whole. So that's kind of where our perspective and our expertise uh-huh. really lies. And then second, the other important point I think we, I could make is that while many other money managers 
base their investment decisions on personal experiences or gut instincts. We find that those are really human emotions that kind of lead you in the wrong direction. So our approach to investment management is really centered around advanced mathematics, precise systems, and data analysis to identify those variables that create return in markets. And based on those variables, really skate to where the puck is going rather than where the puck has been, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Absolutely. You guys have done a phenomenal job. I know we've been using you guys for quite some time now as our investment managers here. We appreciate you you guys and y'all's hard work. So um, I guess what place I want to start, and I guess where everybody's kind of concerned is with markets, right? Um, Just a few days ago, Fed Fed Powell came out, Jerome Powell came out and said, hey, we're going to accelerate the, the, the tapering. So explain to the people in layman's terms, right? Explain to the people a little bit about what that actually means and how will that impact people's portfolios? Yeah, so um, like Kevin said, you know, um, um, a couple of days ago, um, Fed Chairman Powell came out and announced that um, we would uh, accelerate tapering of bond buying. And let, let me back up. So what um, what we're talking about is either throughout the financial crisis and then uh, that dated back to, you know, 2008, 2009, and then extending to the pandemic, one of the mechanisms that the Fed used to really steer us out of a really bad environment, potentially a depression, yeah. uh, was quantitative easing or bond buying, where they would actually expand the Fed's balance sheet and uh, buy treasury bonds or mortgage-backed securities, or potentially even in this last round, corporate bonds, buy them off the open market. And what their hope was really two things. Um, one, they uh, uh, hope to affect the distribution of assets or the uh, portfolio balance that people hold in the market, right? So uh, by buying up bonds, what they do is they drive the yield down and make it unpalatable to hold safe investments and therefore hope that you as the consumer are going to prefer other things, right? They're going to push you out the risk spectrum and that instead of owning a treasury, you might own a corporate bond or instead of owning a corporate bond, you might own an equity, right? And um, what that does is, is really two things. It creates a wealth effect. It makes people feel wealthier by having risk assets go up in value so that they can harvest those gains and spend them into the real economy. Or secondly, it affects the cost of capital, right? So we think about these things as investments of how do we grow wealth, but really they're financing mechanisms for organizations. Mm-hmm. So uh, a company that issues debt or equity, they're trying to finance a project or a business or something like that. That's really what they're trying to accomplish. And when you bid the price up, the cost of that financing for that organization goes, goes down. So two things that the Fed is, is really trying to uh, accomplish. Now, by accelerating the tapering, what they're saying is they're not going to buy as many bonds in the market, right? And when they're buying bonds in the market, what that does is that presses down on long-term bond yields when they're buying bonds. So if you're not doing that, there's potential for that to kind of reverse itself for interest rates to kind of move up. Yeah. Yeah. So in essence, uh, they basically forced investors out of the safe investments into equities, quote unquote. And you see the, the, the consequence of that, which is going to be higher equity values, right? Right. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so that's why we've had since 2008, 2009, uh, you had all this QE quote unquote, and then this, this, this magnificent 
<laughs> if you look at the S&P 500 since 2009, it's been like uh, straight up, right? So um, very, 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 very interesting. And a lot of people, like you said, the wealth effect now feel wealthier because they have higher asset values. And hence the fact that a lot of people are falling out of the workforce because now they're saying, you know what? I have enough money to just to quit not having to work. I'm, I'm gone. So I have this big portfolio value. I'm just going to go off and push the button and no longer going to be in the workforce. So that could be a, have that, have that effect as well. Um, great explanation there. So in our industry, uh, this is, it's been like a battle lately. And it's, it's like, you know, when Tyson was fighting back in the days when we used to watch him and this, and we're like, oh, Tyson's going to knock this. And then, and then, and then of course there was uh, the Buster Douglas situation, but there's a battle between growth and value. I remember watching that fight, by the way. Oh, That's going to beat me, but I remember watching that. Hey, by the way, I was I was none too pleased about the result, man. He, <laughs> hey, that was a 10 count. That was a 10 count on Buster Douglas. They didn't catch it, but I'll, right. I'll have to decide. Uh, but growth versus value, man. Um, explain to us the, the, why there's such a battle in our industry about those two concepts, whether, whether growth is where you need to be at or value is where you need to be at. Kind of talk us a little bit through that. Yeah, so um, the battle that you're referring to is really, um, really related to the dominance of growth stocks over value stocks for really the better part of the last decade, which is kind of unusual, not kind of unusual, it's really unusual. So uh, ab about 30 years ago, two guys by the name of Fama and French found that over virtually any long time period, value stocks outperform growth stocks. So the reason growth stocks have really many re appealing characteristics that are obvious to investors, causing them to pay too much, right? And by overpaying, that tends to drag on performance to give value stocks the advantage. So what's happened is this has really held for decades, even predating uh, their work. And to quantify, so prior to uh, the last decade, the historical average return for value stocks since 1979 was about 11.7% per year, growth stocks about 1045, right? So this difference, this gap, kind of came to be known as the Fama French value premium. Okay. So you, you fast forward to the most recent decade, value stocks do a good job and they deliver a better than average 1285 over the last decade mm -hmm. per year, 1285 per year for the last decade, but growth stocks just wallop them, gaining oh. 1942 yes. over the next decade. So now the lines are drawn, right? Because favoring growth is easy because their characteristics, their appealing characteristics are so obvious, but that's the fatal flaw. You really get drawn in and you pay too much, which is kind of your undoing. So to us, Kevin, this is really kind of reminiscent of the late 1990s internet bubble in a lot of ways. In fact, in many ways, growth stocks are more stretched now than they were even at the peak of that internet bubble, despite those really, you know, impressive gains. And if we dig a little deeper, that's when you start to see cracks emerge. So um, a few statistics around this. So over the last decade, where growth outperformed value by about six and a half percent per year, five and a half percent of that gap was simply due to growth stocks becoming more expensive relative to value, right? The bubble inflating. So fundamentals had very little to do with it. The earnings contri contribution of growth versus value roughly the same as history. Dividends were a little bit better, but not much better. People just paid more for growth stocks. At the same time, 70% of the companies in the Russell 3000 growth have negative earnings, right? So you're paying more for companies that lose money. This really compares to the peak of that internet bubble where 60% of the companies 
had negative earnings. So it's actually a little bit worse. And probably my favorite statistic, 25% of companies in the growth universe trade at 10 times price to sales or greater. So let this sink in for a minute. Mm -hmm. That means if you have zero cost of goods sold, zero payroll, zero expenses, you pay zero taxes, it takes 10 years of revenue to return capital to investors. It's just insane valuations. So with the cost of capital, theoretically, like, like it's going to rise, right? Like they're going to raise interest rates. We're, we're hoping or we're assuming they're going to raise interest rates. Um, and the cost of capital is not going to be as cheap as it is today. So what you're saying is that there's going to be a, a, a cost to those, those growth, growth stocks. I, I guess they're going to have to get, the, the valuation is going to have to change. Yeah. So, and you know, and it, it kind of brings up a, a, another point, right? So that growth stocks um, uh, tend to be the more interest rate sensitive of the of the two styles, right? And it gets into a con concept that's getting a little pressed lately, uh, but it's been around a while called equity duration. So duration is, of course, a concept that we apply to bonds, right? It's the interest rate sensitivity uh, of a bond. Uh, but there are other, um, you know, everything has some level of sensitivity to just about everything, right? So equity duration is the sensitivity of an equity investment to that same thing, to interest rates. Mm -hmm. So growth stocks tend to be the higher equity duration of the two of the two assets, mostly because they return capital really slowly, right? Um, value stocks do a pretty good job. They're going to pay you a dividend. They're going to get your capital back really quickly. Growth stocks, comparatively, you get very little dividend. So they kind of act almost like a zero coupon bond in a sense that's really interest rate sensitive, right? As compared to a coupon bond, that um, that growth universe is the more interest rate sensitive, I guess, zero coupon bond of the equity world. So, and, and we also talk about the growth in regards to, it was Fang, and now it's Mama, whatever they want to call it, right? But so, and, and this is kind of an aside, but what do you think, the impact's going to be on these certain growth stocks. I'm not going to name any names, of course. One's a fruit company, right? But um, these certain growth stocks being, being so big, you know, there's, there's, they make up so much of an index. They make up so much of the market. So if, if, we're, if we're basically changing the valuation of these companies with higher interest rates, what kind of impact do you, th you think that's going to have on the overall market? Yeah, so, I mean... Um... You know, it's a, it's a good it's a good question, um, and something that we've studied a, a little bit. I, I think everyone is focused on uh, this this elephant in the room, right? Which is, you know, we we have some inflation that's out there, and right, we just this week uh, lost the word transitory. Right, Fed Chairman Powell said that transitory is just a bad word to describe it anymore, so he's not going to use it. <laughs> How's that happen? You know, you start right. using the word and it's gone. I don't know what right. happens. Right, the, word, the word's gone. So the, the question is, you know, we're, when we're talking about tapering bond buying or hiking interest rates, it's, it's all from some form uh, of, of tightening. Mm -hmm. um, so, and, and you know, the obvious thing is, or one, one of the arguments has been that equity valuations can be high um, because interest rates are, are so low. And to a certain extent, it's a, it's a true statement, but there's, there's a but to that because what many forget is that uh, changing the level of interest rates by reducing them doesn't create more return. It just pulls return forward, 
Okay. Right. So all you're doing is borrowing tomorrow's return and accelerating it into today, but the equation still has to balance, right? It doesn't add more return to the equation. It just changes the, uh, the timing of it. So if you're harvesting more today, your equity valuation goes up, you're happy because your portfolio is bigger, but your future return correspondingly goes down as a result of, of, of that higher valuation. Now, if you reverse that process, of course, you know, rates go up, then the opposite the opposite needs to occur. But more importantly than changing the level of interest rates, um, not that it's unimportant, but of far more importance is the slope of the yield curve, right? So if, if, if the sensitivity of, uh, of one variable to changing another variable is called a beta statistic, right? So that's basically measures your rate of, rate of change. So if you look at the beta of changing the slope relative to changing the level, it's like three times the impact on equity valuations by changing the slope of the yield curve rather than changing the level of the yield curve. So while everybody's focused on our interest rates gonna go up or down, we can survive a parallel shift. If everything goes up across the yield curve by hundred basis points, it'll hurt. Maybe we'll see a 10% decline in the ultimate fair value of equities, but it's not crushing. Where you end up with, with a problem is when the slope changes. In particular, when that back end of the curve steepens, right? You see long rates moving up faster than short rates. And then you have a problem. So let me lay out a, a scenario here. Okay. We're, um, you know, so we're, we're tapering bond buying, which have been pressing down on those long-term rates. Pro we'd probably see longer, higher long-term rates already if we weren't doing that, right? So you're, re you're removing that. Uh, and everyone is focused on uh, the Fed raising rates. Um, and and it, it will happen eventually. But I think the greater problem is what happens if when the Fed does that first rate hike, if they don't hike enough or they don't hike enough to satisfy the inflation vigilantes where they think that the Fed is behind the curve, if that happens, then you see the longer term end of the yield curve react to that inflation variable by moving up, and that can spell real trouble for equities. Man, you're getting me scared there right there, man. I'm a little frightened. <laughs> by the way, you guys are listening to the Nine Innings podcast hosted by yours truly, Kevin Thompson. We have Mike Pichotti of Integrated Capital Management here with us today, and we're talking markets. So um, how are you guys positioning yourselves for the, for the current market environment? And do you guys see uh, the current volatility kind of being sustainable or kind of just, just kind of just falling away because of, you know, certain things like the like Omicron may not be as, as, as bad, of a, bad, bad of a deal moving forward, or maybe inflation is not necessarily as a significant uh, prohibitor in regards to our overall growth? Yeah, so, I mean, there's a couple of parts. So let me, let me kind of take these in, in turn. Um, and then I, you know, want to make sure that I'm clear on on yes. something that I'm saying. So this is going to be a difficult environment, and by this I'm referring not to the next year, but but really the the you know the next decade, right? Okay. Comparatively speaking, the easy money has kind of been made at this point. Uh, as far as the U.S. goes, you know, as as value investors, um, you know, we we have the U.S. Uh, as expensive as we've seen really in the last century, right? It's not a cheap market 
environment. So at this valuation level, the probability of achieving a historical average return of about 10% is, is really, really low. Call it about 1% or less. So you're just, that level of return that we're accustomed to is not really a viable thing from this. So realistically speaking, we're looking at flat to low single digit types of returns out of US stocks really for the next decade as the likely pass or path, or dare I say, maybe even worse than, than that. So when you consider that the vast majority of not only individual investors, but professional investors allocate more than three quarters of their portfolio, the US really, like the problem kind of starts to become apparent to this. Now, here's the point that I want to clarify. I think that the initial reaction to that statement when I've said it to others is kind of a scarcity reaction. Like, what am I going to do to generate returns? And I don't think that's really the right reaction either. To us, this is a portfolio structure problem, not a return availability problem, right? So there are things like uh, international stocks or emerging market stocks or commodities or things like that that don't face the same valuation overhang mm -hmm. that the U.S. does, and, or, or even from a portfolio, from a, a product structure uh, perspective. Um, uh, products like closed-end funds allow you the ability to manufacture discounts mm -hmm. uh, where discounts may not exist. I think the theme that, that I want to relay is that um, investors who are willing to be different right, and lean more heavily on those assets that maybe served as diversifiers previously, rather than uh, invest in, you know, the kind of the same 60-40 portfolio that got them there that's really U.S. stock and bond heavy, probably have a much better chance to navigate this environment successfully than someone that says, hey, this worked. If it's not broke, don't fix it. I think at this point, you know, there's some stuff that needs to be fixed. Yeah, I'll, I will say there's, there's definitely some guilty parties in regards to the financial industry, including myself, because I mean, the last 15, 20 years, and I, of course, I've only been in the industry for nine, but every, all those nine years, I mean, growth has just outpaced everything like you just mentioned. So the conversations that I've been having are around the value side of things, and, and I'm sure you've had these conversations, and not, not, to, not to put you in any bad light, I'm not going to do that, but it's just having those conversations with a client with a value-centric portfolio versus you're seeing someone else with a growth portfolio. And then you're saying, hey, why is my portfolio only up X when I see the S&P up Y? Like how, how are those, and this is a little side, side note, but how are those conversations been when you guys are having conversations with advisors about the reasons why value, reasons why we need to stick with the value because over time, especially with farmer friends, like you mentioned before, it's, it's, it, it works, value works. But over the last five or six, maybe seven years, I mean, your client, and you know how clients are, right? You know, like, yeah. I want my returns and I want them now. So how those conversations been? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, um, some good, some, some bad, right? Some, you know, so you, as a value investor, one of the things, you know, that we have on our side, you know, not only as a value investor, but as a quant investor, a quantitative investor, um, our best friend is data, right? So... In, in, in these environments um, where things are, uh, you know, the shiny object is elsewhere, the best thing that we found to do is just to be really transparent, really just bear our souls uh, and show the data behind what we're seeing. So um, what, you know, what you're referring to is in an environment where 
uh, prices move beyond fair value, right? A bubble inflates. Yeah. As a value manager, we're looking for undervalued assets. So we're constantly uh, selling what's becoming expensive and buying what's cheap. And when that expensive asset keeps getting more expensive, then you know it looks like the party's going on elsewhere and you're not participating. Kind of like the example that I gave you before, value stocks in this environment did just fine. They gave you a better than average 1285 return for the last decade, but it kind of looks weak when you compare it to a really lofty, unsustainable 19 plus percent rate of return for growth stocks. So how do we have those conversations? You know, um, transparency, right? We just are really transparent on what the data is and we're honest with ourselves, right? If we, if, if we make a mistake on something, then the worst thing you could do is hold on to the mistake. But to us, a mistake doesn't necessarily mean that just something's not going your way because sometimes things require discipline, right? You know, uh, all good things come to those who wait, yeah. as, as, as they say, right? To us, a mistake is if the data changes and doesn't support what you're doing, or you learn of something that was a flaw in your methodology, then you got to change that, right? As long as the data continues to support, and we, you know, we use multiple data points, um, you know, for, for, I mentioned before, you know, our, our uh, uh, valuation models based on interest rates, that's only one of, you know, literally a half a dozen different variables that, that, we, that we look at. If it doesn't support what you're doing, then you have to change it. If it does, then, um, you know, as investors, you need to be disciplined and know what you do and know why it works. Yeah, and you mentioned a great point about the, the, the stretch valuations because most people don't understand that the risk-adjusted return that you're getting with growth right now, I mean, when you back out that, back that out, I mean, you're, you're probably going to be, your returns are probably going to be at or, or lower than the actual value, value investor because, I mean, you're taking on a lot of risk. In, yeah, I think, it's a, I think it's a stretched rubber band as we, we try to describe these. When people just pay more, right, you know, it, it's, um, it's the greater fool theory, right? There's always a greater fool that's willing to pay you more until there isn't one. And when there isn't one, that's when prices decline. Absolutely. Hey, Mike, man, we appreciate these conversations, man. So for the average investor right now who's just looking to, let's just say they're in their 60s, they're looking to retire. Um, they've had a portfolio that's gone up over the last 10 or 15 years. And they're just looking for some an environment to create income. You guys have great income opportunities there at Integrated Capital Management, but uh, searching for yield right now has been a tough environment, right? Certainly, certainly has. You know, I wrote a, a, a piece on it uh, a quarter or two ago, and um, the title of it was The Most Difficult Problem in All of Finance. And the, what I identified was the most difficult problem in all of finance was generating a return for a conservative investor, right? Yeah. Where do you go? It's really easy in portfolio management um, to uh, alter your risk level or, or to control your risk when um, uh, you can be a little bit more aggressive, when people have longer term time horizons. When you have a conservative investor and you have an environment that, uh, uh, that is very limiting, like the environment that we live in right now, it becomes difficult, right? So I think not only for conservative investors, but I'm going to go back to that theme that I used before, like investors being willing to be different. Mm -hmm. um, I think the successful portfolio just won't look like what we're accustomed to uh, it looking like, right? Um, and it may include uh, larger allocations to international stocks and bonds and emerging markets and things like that. 
but I'm not talking about in, in, in great proportion, right? Um, maybe just a little around the edges that adds a little bit to your portfolio, that takes you out of an expensive US stock and bond market environment into an environment that might be a little bit more attractive where you could manage that volatility through your equity to fixed income mix. Or maybe you include things like closed end funds that include elevated yields in your portfolio, or you can manage uh, manufacturer discounts via that um, discount to net asset value. Things like this that you could do around the edges, which going back to your past, Kevin, right? This is not the environment that's the hit home runs environment. Yeah. This is, we got to hit a lot of singles and bunt the runner to second, steal third, and we're going to manufacture that run. It's that kind of environment that we're living in. It's not really that time that we, you know, we're going to swing out of our shoes and try to knock one out of the park. It's just not conducive to that. Well, I'll tell you this about that environment, because right now, if you've seen any baseball lately, that's all they try to do is hit home runs. I don't, know, I don't, I don't get it. They don't, they don't bunt. They don't do any of that stuff anymore. I can't, it's unwatchable to me. And I'm sorry, I shouldn't say that, but Hey man, thank you so much. So, so the last thing is, so what would you uh, suggest uh, the investor do knowing that things are going to change in regards to interest rates the fed may be leaving the party a little early like they're 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 packing up their stuff they're getting ready to go they're getting the cars all warm because it's cold outside so what what are some of your thoughts in regards to just just the proper portfolio management you mentioned before value and all of that but if if you've had this nice little run what what are some of the the opportunities you're seeing in regards to just the overall environment in regards to the current market phase. Well, let me, I mean, I guess the first thing, right. And, and I'm going to go in, into your world and probably something that you preach all, all the, all the time is the, the first thing is um, assess your risk tolerance at this point, right? Make sure that you're in a portfolio that um, if you end up in a not so good environment, that you're able to stick with, right? My, my mentor many years ago told me that the best time to assess risk in your portfolio is when the market's up, right? Mm -hmm. You know, when the market's up, then it's really easy to make a change. The last thing you wanna do is you wanna find out you have too much risk when the market's down 30%, right? At that point, really the damage is done and it's too late. So the first thing is I would encourage people, regardless of what assets you have or what environment, if it, whether it's emerging markets or the US, make sure you're in the right portfolio, right? And, you know, now is a great time. Markets have been really, really strong for it. If you think you have too much risk in your portfolio or your goals or objectives change, then make that shift. Get a little bit more conservative and make sure you're in that, um, that right portfolio. Beyond that, I mean, I think that's probably the most important thing that I could offer to anyone at this point is get that risk level right. Hey, man, we appreciate the time today. Mike, thank you for joining us. This is Mike Pachotti, Integrated Capital Management. Um, Thank you guys for joining us, man. Thank you. Thank you for just, just giving us your, your wisdom, man. We, we love this information because people need to be educated. People need to understand why things are happening. People need to understand, well, yeah, the portfolios have gone up. Growth has done very, very well, but there's a reason behind it because the Fed is basically feeding the monster, you know, and allowing the, allowing the market to go up. But of course, we all know what happens. Eventually that changes. So we just need to be prepared for it. Thank you, man. We appreciate the time today. Glad to be here. Thanks for thank having you, me. Thank you so much. And again, thank you guys for joining the 90s podcast. Thank you guys for joining us. As always, go to our website, www.980scapitalgroup.com. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, type in 980s at 9i cap group to send us an email. And also subscribe to the channel, the YouTube station here at 980s Capital Group. Thank you guys for joining us. Stay humble, stay safe. God bless. Mike, thanks again. <laughs>